welcome to Talk With Me. This is Marsha Epstein, and, and for those who haven't listened before or haven't heard me blab, because sometimes I just blab, I guess, but I get to record this show sitting in the dining room of the house built in the 1880s for one of the first surgeons in Kansas. Um, and, and I'm saying that because I, I find delight in the culture, the art, the, the history, being aware of things that are not just who I am and what I do, but, but you know, I look through windows in my house that are windows that have been looked through since the 1880s. I have, in our community, one of the things that's kind of a, well, a big turning point is one of what we call Quantrill's Raids, where much of the actual city was burned down and most of the males, probably all that could be found, were killed. And I'm saying that sad story um, with the positive that so kind of catacornered for me across the alley down the street a little bit is one of the surviving homes from that time period, a beautiful stone house. And the story of that house is that the woman, unfortunately, you know, her husband didn't survive, but the woman, Annie Bell, did survive, was able to keep the house had to live in the basement and to rent out the house to be able to to live after these terrible things happened in Lawrence. But it's one of those reminders of very strong women in Lawrence, Kansas, as well as other parts of our country. And, and I love knowing that that's part of my neighborhood. And there are stories like that, where there are hitching posts, limestone hitching posts in front of uh, most of the houses around here. And, and, you know, they're not just this decorative thing that somebody did as art pieces, which would be fine if they were, but they're, they're actual um, posts for hitching horses, horses and, and buggies. And, and we have a picture photograph of the doctor and um, his wife on the front porch and a photograph of that, you know, one, I don't know, maybe there was more than one um, carriage that he used because he did house calls with his horse and buggy for a period of time. So cool stuff. I think it's important to pay attention to things like that. And I'm just gonna give a quick shout out to the US Department of Arts and Culture, which is this amazing people's movement that really is about, um, one of the main goals is about belonging. Imagine that, we all belong here. And that one of the ways that we can experience that is through paying attention and elevating arts and culture and how we consider those in decision-making in our communities. So cool stuff going on. With that in mind, I also want to say that I have a guest today who is one of those arts and culture kind of people. Um, not that she's with the USDAC, but she is a writer. She is a poet. She is going to be one of those reading at the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown which is April 21st through 23rd. And so I want you and me to welcome Jenny Malberg. Hi, Marcia. It's so fantastic to be here with you. Yeah, it's fun. Good stuff going on. So tell us a little bit about you. Well, um, I am originally from Dallas, Texas, and I recently uh, began a job as a professor at University of Central Missouri. I'm assistant professor of English. This is my second year of teaching. Um, I also co-edit Pleiades magazine here, which is a literary journal that's nationally distributed. Um, mm -hmm. 
and I'm a poet, as you said. So my first book is about to be released on February 1st. That's exciting. That's very soon. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. So Thank you. since that's coming right up, tell us a little bit about that book. Uh, the book is called Marvels of the Invisible. It's a collection of poems. It won the Berkshire Prize uh, from Tupelo Press for a first or second book of poetry. Um, and it's interesting, you're talking about sitting in the house of the first surgeon in Kansas, or one of, did you say the first? Here's one of the first, um, yeah. One of the first, that's so interesting. The, uh, my book has a lot to do with science. Um, my dad is a pathologist, and I write a lot about that. I also take inspiration from old um, 19th century scientific letters that were written between surgeons. Oh, so cool. kind of an interesting tie. Yeah. It's so weird how that happens. It's been a few months, but uh, a novelist who does historically based um, novels because he is a scientist. His name is Chris Kristalka, and he's actually the director of the Center for Biodiversity at the University of Kansas. And then oh, wow. you know, he has this, this fiction writing that he does. And so we're talking about this book that he's working on and and these details, and it's it's a, a book, and he does a lot of research, which, um, you know, like you've described looking at, you know, you, the real stuff. It's not just like, I'm going to pr- pretend I know what happened at this time period. You know what scientific <laughs> you know papers would be like from them. Anyway, he was talking about this this book that that the the sort of core of it it relates to uh, a death that was uh, ruled a suicide death, but probably perhaps wasn't, and and the story of the people, and and so he's saying you know some of some of the stuff he looked at he was looking at stuff from the medical examiner examination blah blah blah. Yeah. And there was a Dr. So-and-so and a Dr. Morse. And I looked at Chris and I said, this house, this is Dr. Morse home. This is the Frederick Daniels Morse home. Oh, <laughs> like, how weird that's incredible. That? <laughs> that you've read oh, stuff wow. about my doctor, you know, <laughs> whose house we oh, live in. incredible. Yeah, I love that. And you, li- you live in this house. Yeah, this is our house. We, it's between the wow. downtown Lawrence area and the University of Kansas. So it's an area okay. that's that's that students live in, working people live in. You know, it's always been a mixed area with some bigger houses and some smaller houses and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, this is our home, and and we just as a lot of places, um, there's a, the risk in older neighborhoods of things being torn down. Um, and mm-hmm. so we chose to live in this neighborhood, and also chose to do the research to get the house on the national register thinking that it would help provide some protections for nearby properties as well, kind of slow down that that sense of, not sense, but that actual the legalities of buying property to tear it down to build big, ugly apartment complexes. Or maybe big, not so ugly, you know, depending on your taste. But anyway, anyway, so yeah, so, so we live in this house that, again, is officially the Frederick Daniels Moore's home. And 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 Dr. Morris appears in Chris's upcoming book. <laughs> wow! Yeah. And, and how wonderful to know the history of your own house and yeah. to be able to imagine it. That's that's really yeah. neat. Yeah, it really is cool. It is cool. So back to you and your book, and then there's this this writing and science connection. I love that. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, because it's 
it, I mean, I've talked to, there are people that his writing is very inspired by nature. There are different kinds of themes that come up a lot. And so it's, it's cool that, you know, you, you say, well, yeah, my dad was a pathologist, you know, so this is part of who I am too. Some, somewhere in there, it's in your genes. <laughs> yeah. And there's something, I, I feel like writing and science are connected really deeply um, just in terms of curiosity, you know, um, and sort of like, I mean, my title sort of comes from this, the, the idea of marveling at the world um, and discovery. So uh -huh. I, I feel like they're just intrinsically connected. That's very cool. Yeah. And this book is coming out very soon. And I wonder if you want to go ahead and tell people. So how do they find this when it becomes February? It's on Amazon now. Um, and it's available for pre-order, Marvels of the Invisible. Uh, it's also available for pre-order on Tupelo Press's website. Um, so those two places you can pre-order, and then on February 1st, you'll be able to order it. And I think it's available for prime shipping on Amazon as well. I'm going to say try Tupelo Press first. There's something wonderful about going directly yeah. to the source. I'm a huge fan of supporting small presses, local businesses, you know, and, and so sometimes I use <laughs> Amazon to get information and then I go to my local bookstore, which is the Raven Bookstore in downtown Lawrence, and say, hey, you have this? If not, will you order it for me? <laughs> right, and Tupelo Press is, is such an excellent press and um, they do a lot of good work for the literary community. And it's neat when you order books from them, the packaging is really pretty and they'll include a catalog of their um, forthcoming books. So yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, Tupelo yeah. Press is the first place to go. Yeah. So I'll make sure that we have that link in with the information about the show and the book that this is the best place to get the book. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And so your history of writing, tell us a little bit about that. You know, what kinds of writing you've done and kind of when that got started for you? Well, I have, I've always been writing ever since I could write. My grandmother was an English teacher and she used to bring stacks of books over when she visited. And um, she, she wrote also, she would write, she wrote books for us to read and my grandfather would illustrate them and she wrote poems. And um, she actually, the book is dedicated to her. She's a huge inspiration to me um, and still is. And I, I had a moment in my life. I used to uh, write my own community newspaper where I would go around and sort of spy on the neighbors and <laughs> dig up dirt. And then, so I thought I wanted to be a journalism major. I went to college and I was working for the LSU newspaper um, and I was fired because they said I asked too many questions. I tried to spin everything into some juicy story. So <laughs> <laughs> I decided to change my major to creative writing and then I took my first poetry workshop and ever since I've just been in love with writing poetry. Uh, so that really happened in college that you started writing poetry? I wrote poems in high school, um, but I didn't really take it too seriously. I mean, I loved to do it, but I didn't take it seriously as an actual career path uh -huh. um, because, you know, there's no money in poetry, uh -huh. <laughs> um, which I was told again and again, but I just decided, oh, well, I'll figure it out mm -hmm. because it's my love. 
Yeah, that's great. And with the classes that you teach, are some of those specifically poetry? Yes, I am teaching a class right now at um, Central Missouri that is called Writing Poetry for Publication, where my students read contemporary poetry and we have a poetry workshop and the goal of the class is for them to get their, their work published. Um, wow. And I also teach beginning poetry workshops and intermediate poetry workshops. I teach one called The Art of Poetry where we look at form. Um, and I also teach American literature where we read a lot of poetry. So definitely That's my great. focus. That's good. So what are your students like? Those ones who take those poetry workshops and classes? Um, my students are fantastic. Um, I have one of my students who I worked with in an independent study just got news that one of her poems was accepted for publication in a really fantastic um, nationally recognized journal. Um, and, you know, they work hard and we have a community open mic and they attend that. They've won awards. I'm, I'm really proud of them and I feel like I learn from them every day. So That's I love wonderful. my students. Yeah, that is wonderful. That comes across. That's that enthusiasm. So are your students... And two, two of my poets... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to also add that two of my poetry students are um, going to travel with me to Washington, D.C. in a couple of weeks to go to the um, AWP Writers Conference. Uh -huh. And they're going to help... Um, work the table at the book fair for Pleiades magazine and they'll have this up they, they've gotten this great opportunity to um you know take grant money from the university and really become a part of the the national writing community which uh -huh. i think is a fantastic opportunity for them so. that is wonderful and that's so cool because you know when i think about my my profession social work and my my area of emphasis is suicide prevention and being able to go to a national conference, getting to know people who were there, you know, making those connections, seeing people face to face, you know, a great way to do that is by having a role. Like you're saying, they're going to be there representing this journal. They're going to have the chance to to talk to people in a, in a way that they kind of have an in because we're talking, you know, well, you, you know, thanks for stopping by our table. Let me, you know, <laughs> exactly, it's easier right. than just be in one of the masses. <laughs> it, exactly. And especially as an undergraduate, I mean, I just imagine myself at that time. And I, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to sort of assert yourself at that point. So uh -huh. I think this, I think this will be an excellent opportunity for them. I'm yeah, excited. That's wonderful. It's really going to be inspirational for them. That's so cool. And what I was starting to ask is, are your students typically traditional age students or do you have a mix of, you know, the people coming back to school and, and go there? Or, you know, what what's the student body like in that, or not the student body in general, but your students? Um, what are they yeah, like? they're mostly, they're mostly traditional, traditional um, students. I, I have had some non-traditional students and usually that happens more in my literature classes. And I really couldn't tell you why. Um, Sometimes I teach the literature classes online, which explains why I would have some non-traditional students there. Um, but I have had some returning students in my in my creative writing classes, but it's uh -huh. normally, you know, traditional age. Uh huh. It's it's always interesting to me to to hear people's sort of progression with their writing because I I know a lot of people who say, you know, I, I started writing. 
as a kid at whatever age. And really, I've pretty much always written in, in okay. terms of that creative kind of writing, poetry, you know, short stories, whatever their genre is. And there are other people who were immersed in a career that involved a different kind of writing. And then when they finally gave themselves sort of the permission to, to leave that, then they really began to, to flourish with their personal writing. I think about, about one uh, woman here, Elizabeth Schultz, who taught at the University uh-huh. of Kansas and is highly known as a scholar of Herman Melville. And, and she started writing poetry after this career and all this academic writing. And she, her poetry is wonderful, you know, and, and she's not the only person I've talked to who would say, you know, yeah, you know, the writing has been important and reading has been important, but, but this that I do, this poetry, these stories, these are really a relatively recent thing in a long career. And, and so it's, it's interesting to, to see sort of how that works for people. Right. I, it's so nice to have non-traditional students in workshops because of the diversity of perspective and what they can offer. Um, I, when I lived in Austin, Texas, before I started my um, PhD program, I taught uh, a workshop for senior citizens at a senior center, and it was one of the best experiences of my life. I mean, for me to be their teacher was almost a joke because they taught me so much about life. And yeah, so... And- I love stories like that about, you know, getting into community situations with people and, and doing mm-hmm. writing workshops. You know, I, I, around here in, in both in Kansas City area and in Lawrence, I, I know poets who go into corrections, um, jails, prisons, detention for kids, those kinds of places, and teach poetry right. workshops. You know, and it's like, that is right. so cool. And in fact, I had a, a sort of serendipitous experience meeting somebody in our downtown Lawrence area recently after he had been released from the Douglas County Jail. And he wanted to share with me and my friend Sue Edgerton, who's a poet from Topeka, um, he wanted to share some of his poetry. And and with all these hard things that were going on in his life, it's like, oh my God, you know, these things, and they were largely financial that got him to end up actually in jail and he lost his housing while he's in jail. And so he's released from jail and, you know, not even sure where he's going to be staying for a while, sort of how he's going to piece things back together. But he, he is uplifted by this new ability that he has to express himself through poetry. And it was like, wow, was, that's incredible. Yeah, it was wonderful and beautiful. It's like, man, this is amazing power. And and for me, as I say that, you know, I think, well, one of the things I started hearing when I started talking to writers as well as to painters and, and other artists, that, that that making of art really is life-saving for a lot of people. That that ability to communicate through that art is, is different than what happens other places. And it's clarifying and it's beneficial, you know, even before you get to the point of sharing it. It's like, this is powerful stuff. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just even writing can be empowering, even if you don't put it out into the world, just because it sort of equips you with the language to deal with your situation. Or art can do that in many different ways. Yeah. I agree. I would love to have you share a poem and you know to, to give us a sense of some of the writing that you're doing 
I, I don't want us okay. only to be talking about writing, but also to hear some of you lovely. I would be happy to. I, I think I'll read the, the title poem of this collection um, that's forthcoming. And just something you should know before um, I read it. So the title comes from uh, a toy microscope of my dad that I found <laughs> in my parents' house. Right. And so the poem begins with a quote from the instruction manual from this 1950s toy microscope. And it says, with your new microset model one, you will discover marvels of the invisible. Ah, cool. Okay. Marvels of the invisible. The night I find my father's toy microscope and the hospital cold of the empty house, I dream of him a boy in 1964. He crosses the yard, kneels beneath the sprawling live oak and fills his specimen jar with fire ants. His father in the garage sings softly in German, mounting the head of a deer shot that winter. Its antlers blossom like capillaries. My father is six years old. The lights fills in as he bends over the microscope and folds a single ant onto a plastic slide. The body, almost thickening in its translucence, curled into itself. Bright red thorax, close up, is butterscotch. Pressed beneath the plastic, the antenna shiver and are still. Half a century later, my mother's breasts are removed. In the waiting room, my father takes a pen from his white coat pocket and clicks open and clicks closed. When someone in the family asks a question, he takes a walk. I go with him and we wind through orange tiled hallways. He shows me the room full of microscopes. I imagine his eye, how it descends like a dark blue planet and his breath as it clouds the lens. He shows me the refrigerator where they keep the malignant tissue. He shows me the microtomes, the biopsy needles, the organ baths. In the recovery room, we listen as my mother's new systems of blood vessels shush through a speaker in the room. My father comes in quietly, places a white orchid beside her bed. The large white blossoms are hands cupping the empty air. Suspended there is everything that came before this. The day my parents met, the wedding, each of the three children so different from the others. His hands that know, like breathing, every inch of her. He matches his breath with hers, as they do each night in the slow river of a breathing house. And beneath her skin, her blood blossoms. That is beautiful. Thank you, Marsha. Is your mom still alive? Yes. Yeah. Yes, she is. She's so, fully recovered. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. how, how they caught your, they caught the cancer. Uh, how do your mom and dad see this poem? What what do they say about being part of this important work of yours? It's, well, it's really emotional for them, I think. And it is for me, too. Um, sometimes it's kind of a difficult poem to read. But um, 
yeah, I, you know, I think, I think just hearing some of the details and, and of, you know, those moments that they were so in, but from a different perspective, from my perspective, I think, yeah, I think it's emotional for them. Um, and we're so grateful that my mom fully recovered. Yeah. And it was really interesting, too, to watch my dad as a scientist. He actually diagnosed her cancer. So it's interesting to have that relationship of this person who you love more than anyone in the world and you've had children with and you've been married to for more than 30 years. And then, like, from the scientific perspective to see the cancer on under the microscope and there's that line between like, you know, what is, what is human and what is science and how that line is not, you know, divisive. It's science is always human. He, and you say he diagnosed the cancer. Is that because in his role as a pathologist, he was the one who would be looking at the, the biopsy? Exactly. And, and technically someone else has to be the pathologist who diagnoses it. But, you know, he saw, um, he saw the tissue and identified the cancer and was the one to tell my mom the news. So, you know, kind of an interesting, you know, moment there that her husband is also the person who can see the cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And then he showed you some of sort of how that all happens by showing you, sounds like, you know, that the, when you were talking about him showing you the different kinds of equipment or I'm not sure exactly what the Right. I've always been really interested in what he does. And there were these, we were in the hospital for so long. She was in surgery for 18 hours. And oh. so we were all there and awake and worried and, so we just, you know, and the whole family's there. And so we would just take these moments and go into his lab and he would kind of teach me things to distract us both. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's really a powerful family connection. Just, you know, thinking about you all sharing this experience from, like you're saying, different perspectives and for your dad, including from a professional perspective. Right. Yeah. And, and so good that your mom is fortunate and is is feeling healthy these days. That's a really, really great thing. Oh yeah, we're really lucky. I mean they 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 saw the cancer so early and just decided to be preventative and so very fortunate for that. And and for me, you know, in terms of, you know, this being one of the stories and one of the poems in this book, it's it's important because it's hard stuff for people to talk about. Obviously, when somebody they love is very ill, or when they're the one who's very ill, and so mm-hmm. by by sharing such a personal story of your own family, it, it gives permission for other people to talk about things that maybe they weren't talking about, and maybe it's been kind of festering there for them to to say some of this, you know. And so, it's that amazing gift to me. That's that's the sharing part of. You know, you wrote it, and and you and your family get to talk about it. But then, when it's shared more publicly, other people get that benefit. They get that kind of nudge that it's it really is okay for us to talk about these things. This is part mm-hmm. of life. Sometimes, yeah. That's nice, and that's my hope. 
Um, and I, I also feel like um, in those moments when, especially as in my role as the oldest child, you know, you want to be resilient and you want to be strong for your family. And there's something about art and poetry where you can, you're allowed to be weak when you need to be in those moments to sort of feel your fears. And that's that poem, this poem allowed me, writing this poem allowed me to do that. I mean, I wrote, it took me a really long time to write the poem just because it, it's hard to allow yourself to even be that vulnerable on the page. Yeah but I think it's healing. Yeah. yeah. A, a New York poet that I spoke to, Ali Malinenko, has a couple of volumes that are related to her cancer treatment. And wow. I think about an artist, uh, a writer here, who's more of the memoir style, Louise Krug, um, has two books that relate to different time periods related to um, brain tumors and changes that happen with the treatment, you know, with having to have surgery and, and changes in her abilities and appearance and and this this open, you know, conversation about how hard this is, you know. But, you know, you find the humor and you find the good stuff and you appreciate living even more, but you know, we're we're changed by all of our experiences and that's an important reminder. We're not less, we're just changed. <laughs> right. We're better. Yeah. Sometimes we're better as as actually something that I see in in my work is that People will say, you know, I learned things I didn't know. I'm more compassionate. I'm, I have a more clear perspective on what's really important and what's not, you know, that, that there are gifts. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're at this point where we should take a little break. And okay. we'll hear from a couple of Lawrence, Kansas businesses that sponsor LawrenceHits.com. And then... I get to thank Daniel Smith, who is doing this recording with me from the distance of Yuma, Arizona. Oh, and wow. He, yeah, he will soon be back in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, we'll have to decide if we're always going to be in the same room or not when we record. I'm so, so comfortable doing things the way I do them here. I may be kind of a pain. So, Daniel, thank you for tolerating me. <laughs> um, and, and I really appreciate all that he does so that people get to hear the, the shows. And then we'll be right back with more conversation with poet Jenny Malberg. Thanks, Marcia. Welcome back to Talk With Me and my guest today, Jenny Malberg. And we were talking about this very personal experience in terms of sharing this poetry about family, about a family health crisis that's part of, and is the title poem of Marvel's, Marvel's of the Invisible. <laughs> Not the round kind that you play with, Marvel's, Marvelous. <laughs> Um, and I and I also because we were talking about sort of the, the power of both creating and the and the sharing and the permission it gives, you know, I, I can't help but but then ask you about sort of the the activism role with with art, you know that you know you you mentioned that you all you and and two students will be going to D.C. for a conference. There's so much going on in the world right now, and and I see art as one of those ways that people can learn things, maybe learn things they weren't so open to because they might challenge what their beliefs are, um, you know, that, that we might we might get something slipped in that we didn't realize. Um, and it's a good thing, and it might even change things that we do. So I'm wondering if that's something that's coming up with your students, like if there are things that you and they are doing um, maybe differently because of, 
what's going on in, in our country. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think about this a lot, which is um, in W.H. Auden's poem about Yeats, he says that poetry makes nothing happen, and people quote that all the time. But what they forget is that later in that same stanza, um, he says, it's a way of happening, a mouth. And I like to introduce that to my students, that idea that, okay, maybe your poem won't literally change the world, but it's a way of changing because it's a mouth. It's, you know, language can be the beginning of change or it can inspire change. And, um, you know, in light, it's hard to not bring politics too much into the classroom. And I try not to, you know, because it can alienate students, but I do encourage them to, um, to think about language in that way. I'm also teaming up with a professor in the music department next fall, and we're, we're co-teaching an integrated learning community. So the students take a writing class and a music class, and, the, and it's called protest. Um, social dissent in writing and music. And wow. we're going to, I'm really excited. We're going to um, look at uh, blues and jazz and rock and roll. And we're going to put that next to movements in literature um, that, you know, give voice to social change. So like the confessional poets and the writings of people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and um, other civil, civil rights poets and have the students um, sort of create artifacts, either musical or writing or, or that contain both that uh, give voice to their own social dissent or peaceful protest in some way. That's exciting. I, I, I love the multidisciplinary part too. And then I think about, it's interesting because I've, in fact, last night I was spending some time kind of looking for music that, I was kind of looking for music to be actually to be kind of a salve for sort of where I was thinking right. about things, you know, and I was, and I was finding, I was finding some articles with like, there's, there's this, this delightful um, article that's different versions of it that where the musician Moby was asked if he would DJ at the inauguration and, and, oh my gosh. He, he has a funny reaction that includes that his payment would have to be the release of the Trump tax records. <laughs> but separate <but laughs> from that, he has this, he does have this, he shares his, his Spotify playlist um, uh, that he that he personally um, is listening to related to this time. And oh, really? I was looking at some other stuff and I was seeing that, man, it's so male dominated. There's so much. His playlist? is and and i was looking at something else you know and i'm like where are the voices of other people certainly there are african-american and so not only white male voices you know but it's like women care about things too <laughs> a lot yeah. of wonderful music and powerful music by women and it it this is total side note but so it led me to to look at some things about Joan Baez, like where is she, you know, and, and all that's going on. And it was mm -hmm. really interesting because I found this little little like news interview where she was at something that was a, a protest that sounds like it was 
really organized, maybe even by high school students. Like, oh wow, I, I don't even think it was college students. I might be wrong, but the way they talked about the the people, it made me think they were very young. And and she was she was you know obviously talking about how moved she was by these young people, but when she talked about Trump, it was it was with this grace that I don't have <laughs> that and, and hopefulness that she she referred to him as an empty vessel and that yeah. that basically we need to find ways to pour different kinds of things into him than what he's oh, wow. it's like that's very that's, helpful. You're right. Yeah, it's difficult yeah. to be graceful and <laughs> some of this <laughs> anger. Yeah. I, I feel like Patty Smith inspires me in, in, in this time too. Um, it's another so, strong yeah. female voice. Yeah. Cause John Baez is so old school, long time, you know, always committed. I thought, okay, I, let me, let me find something she's saying right now. Maybe that'll help me. And it's like, Hmm, this is another perspective. It's that reminder that art can, you know, I sought her out because of her art and it wasn't what I expected to hear, but, but I can listen to that and I can think mm. about that. I can ponder. Yeah. How you do. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And, and you personally, before we got on the show, you said you're going to be participating and, and have participated in some activities, the art related and other. Um, and I think that's important. I think, you know, with a, with, artists who I'm getting to know in different places, there's some wonderfully cool things that people are doing. And one of the things that I love that is, and it was such a simple thing, and I think it came up in some news stories too, but um, a, a poet in who's based in Long Island, New York, Rob Plath, sent me some photographs from subways stations in New York City and how artists had provided, and this kind of notion came about of, they provided post-it notes. And so there were these walls of subway stations covered with post-it notes of messages of love, basically, you know, that, that reminder that, you know, that's really what, what deflates hate is love. And it's like, ah, that's so cool. And it's like, so far, right, so some poets and, you know, artists decided we need to do this and people jumped on the opportunity. And so there are lots of cool wow. things going on. Yeah. Lots of cool things. Definitely. Yeah. And the writers resist movement, um, I, I went to uh, Columbia this past Sunday and and um, and watched as as poets and writers read their work of resistance and it was really amazing and I think they're going to do some more events like that in the future um, and I don't know if you saw online but the Writers Resist event in New York I, there were like tons of people there and the uh, they hundreds of these events happen all over the country on Sunday. And then I'm going to also go uh, to Kansas city uh, on Saturday and do the women's March. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there are for people who are interested, you know, we're listening to this on Friday night, the 20th, there are women's marches, marches all over the country, you know, and for people who want to do that as women or as allies to women, you don't only have to be, yeah. you know, and the more, yeah. the more diversity, the more support, the better. And exactly. um, I'm uh -huh. always kind of mixed about things. And that this is my personal thing. It's like, sometimes I need to know that I'm making a difference. And sometimes I forget that, that physical presence makes a difference, particularly to those people who are most vulnerable and most fearful um, because of the implications 
of changes that are coming, you know, to see that other people care too is a huge gift. So, so that's one of those reminders. We can all do things and we can do them in little ways too, you know, getting off the art subject. Absolutely. But, but reach out to people, check in with people, you know, have conversations with people, including people who you don't look like, you know, to, to see how they're doing in ways that, that aren't right. cozy and obtrusive. Like, I don't know, you know, you said you did a little newsletter when you were <laughs> in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe that would be the perfect time to do that. Door to door, right, yeah. and ask our neighbors how they're doing, what they're thinking, <laughs> and let them know we're right. going to share this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think now in this time too, even listening can be an act of resistance in some ways. You know, just to to be an ear to voices that aren't heard enough. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. That kind of listening is so so powerful. Um, there's a whole movement called Urban Confessional with people that that are actually strategically at events that have signs that say free listening to give people that opportunity to say things. And then I'm going to just sneak in another little USDAC, U.S. Department of Arts and Culture plug. From January 27th to February 5th across the country, there are groups and, and individuals who are sponsoring are organizing story circles. And the idea yeah. is to get stories and there are some prompts. You don't have to follow them exactly, but but the overall message is about belonging and not belonging. And in story yeah. circles, with this this type of story circle, the way that you that it's conducted is that each person gets the same amount of time. So it's usually two or three minutes. And when that person is talking, everybody else, let's say you have eight, ten people in a circle, each person is listening to that person. They're not speaking. They're not doing what I'm doing, which is saying, oh, and this makes me think of this. We're just listening to each other. Everybody gets heard equally, no matter who they are, what they are, you know, in terms of in their roles in the outside world. Everybody gets heard. And the only thing that we get to say at that point is after they've stopped, we can be quiet and then say thank you. We can't say, I loved it when you said this. We just get to say thank you. And we go around the circle and... For those who have given permission, which normally is everybody in these activities, the stories are, are written down and then they are submitted to this um, national website and you can find it um, with a, a people State of the Union stories from each year. So there's that and there's also a set of poets who read through these stories and then come up with a national poetic address it's called the people state of the union so okay. for people who want to participate it's it's not too late to say i want to do this with some people i know um some people who may not be represented other places for example um uh, so it might be in a faith community or in some other kind of organization but to give to elevate people's voices through this and the, the way that you can find out more the the Actual the the website for the main organization is usdac.us because it's U.S. Department of Arts and Culture. It's a people's movement. It's not a federal government thing. And then backslash psotu for People's State of the Union. There's a toolkit that actually teaches you know has the information about how you how you conduct the story circles, how you upload the stories if you're willing to do that. You know when the poetic address will be, all that kind of stuff. 
we're doing it in Lawrence, Kansas. So I'm going on and on. We're doing it in Lawrence, Kansas in terms of a group set of story circles on Sunday, the 29th of January at the Lawrence Public Library. And some people will do them in homes and in other places and, and all across the country. And primarily it's artists who are leading the circles, um, who are following some training from USDAC so that we actually get to share those stories. And it gets back to that, you know, what, what was my launching point from, from what you're saying, Jenny, is listening is powerful. And not everybody gets listened to equally. You know? Right. This is a chance to do that. And that's, you know, a whole other, you know, link back to, like you said, you've got a, a regular open mic in your community in terms of poetry. And it's like that same kind of thing where everybody is valued. They get up at the mic and they're valued. At least that's what I've seen at every open mic I've been to, even slams that I've been to. You know, it's like people are there and they are, they are respecting each other. They're supporting each other. They encourage each other. You know, and it's not to say that every poem that's shared is fabulous in terms of, you know, that, it, you know, maybe, maybe it'll be even better in a, in a couple edits, you know, it doesn't matter, but, but so much support for people sharing, you know, for being brave enough to stand at the mic. And I love that part of readings. I love that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, community change can happen there too. We have um, people um, really in working to change local government here who are voicing that at the open mics and sharing that information with us. So community spaces like that are really important right now, I think. Yeah, yeah, very important. And mm -hmm. as we're talking about sharing poetry at a mic, in our own kind of mic that we're using to record today, I would love, if you're ready, uh, to have you share another poem. Sure. Um, let's see, thinking about what we've, what you were saying about um, women and women's voices, I think this poem might be relevant. Um, this poem is called Narrative, and I was thinking about different, the way that people tell different versions of the same story, and um, sometimes people who are victims uh, have obviously different versions of the same story, and this poem is about um, an abusive relationship, and so it seems like the right poem to read right now. Narrative. Because there is no principle of love, you and I ride horses to a curve in the lake. Because we are ever expanding cosmic bodies, but do not understand physics, my horse will be named Dakota, and yours Chip. And when he bends his head to drink, the forces of memory and dark energy erupt from the water like cattails. When we say love, we only know how for a few moments and keep insisting on different versions of the same story. Chaos, or better, the original emptiness is always a constant. One horse bellows and the other answers with a clip of her shoe on a nearby stone. Because suffering is difficult to define, the lake is this blue only once. The horses toss the reins from their necks. They have been here a long time and know only the old ways. When we return home, we keep trying different ways to feel the same. And the old sun sets on the stables 
The stable man lies down beside his wife. They hear hooves that kick against stable doors, and she cannot sleep without that sound. And so tell us a little bit about that, the, the horse imagery. How, how, is, how does that come to you? What, what's maybe your experience with horses? I think I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about, you know, relationships. Well, uh, one in particular that was emotionally abusive and how, you know, the, the idea that suffering is difficult to define. So mm-hmm. in poetry, we look to metaphor and um, I, the horses, you know, are, you know, enacting this metaphor of this, this, relationship and um this poem is sort of hard for me to explain but i think in the end you know with the woman who can't sleep without the sound of the horses kicking against the stable doors um there's something there's something wild inside her that wants to escape but also in some abusive relationships people become accustomed to that um stable that figurative stable, you know, the idea of being trapped um, in the way that, you know, your story doesn't match up with the other person's story and there is violence there, but, but you don't know how to escape. So you become accustomed to that sound of trying to escape. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's kind of difficult to explain, but. Well, and I think that the starting point of being that we have different perspectives and then the other part to me is sort of that wearing down of you know trusting our own selves trusting our reality or what we get accustomed to and then I think about it in so many different ways I think about it in relationships I think about it well if I just say relationships are lots of different kinds of relationships that that Uh we can we can get accustomed to things being a certain way and that becomes sort of a norm, and we may not realize that that norm is is meaning that we've we've adjusted these expectations so that we're actually tolerating abusive behavior all the time because it's not even worse, you know. Right. And I, and I see that I see that in personal relationships. I see that in in governmental things when I think about. It, it comes up, you know, getting back to the start of the show, I was talking about, you know, this historic homes and neighborhoods and, and culture and and that so many times for those of us who live in, whether you just want to call them old or historic, you know, where there's lots of stories, there's lots of experiences that have happened in those parts of communities, um, they aren't financially valued maybe in the same way as a huge development. And so then we get sort of forced to have, or allowed to have a little bit of input into forced changes that we don't want because it could be even so much worse, you know? (laughs) Well, you get to say that, you know, you, you get to say that you don't think it'd be so horrible if this building has a brick facade even though it's going to be 10 times higher than anything else and totally destroys the landscape and the scenery, the setting for everything else around here. But you get to, you get to say, well, it's, you know, at least it'd be better if it had a brick facade rather than this, you know, it's like, 
that's not really giving people power and respect and choice, you know, and, and sometimes we forget that in relationships in the same way, you know, that, that this person really does treat me bad all the time. And, and right. yeah, sometimes treats me even worse. And so I'm glad for the times it's not worse, but you know, I, I forget that the treating bad isn't okay. You know? Yeah, it is kind of political, too, because, like, the woman in the poem has these invisible reins and this invisible stable yeah. that she's grown so accustomed to that it's even difficult to recognize, you know, where she has the right to certain freedoms. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, it, just thinking about women specifically, but it happens to all sorts of people, yeah. um, there are powers that impose certain restrictions on us, and we sometimes grow accustomed to them. Yeah. And so to me, the poem becomes, again, this this way of saying to people, you know, this may be close to your experience, and, you know, I'm talking about it through this poem, and maybe it's something you want to talk about in some ways, too. You know, that a lot of times... We have things going on, and I don't know. My overall belief is that when we don't, when we have things that we won't talk about that are important to us. That that tends to be linked with shame, and uh -huh. I don't think shame has any positive functions. So, you know, I mean, and I'm being really earnest about that. You know, I, I I don't think so. I'm not saying that we should tell everything to everybody because that's not accurate either. But that we need to have some safe places. And gets back to, you know, what you had said earlier, that the importance of listening, you know, that that's something we can do for, for people, for each other. We can ask to be heard at times and we can right. listen to people. And there is a relief in having somebody be willing to, to share that piece of your story. I, I also think about a dear friend of mine who's also a therapist and she said, you know, it's like we hold our, as in therapy, we, we hold our hands out to accept these things, this this pain from this person. And and it really does provide some relief for this person to be able to air this. It takes off some intensity. Now I know that's my experience when I'm the one talking about personal something hard. But the other piece is when you're the recipient, it's like, okay, now what do I do with it? Hot potato. Right. You know, how do we how do we take care of ourselves? And that's an important thing. And that's where I get to, you know, another part for me with art is Sometimes art is this delightful distraction, you know? Sometimes mm -hmm. that is the best kind of art, is something that, that makes you laugh, that, that takes you to a wonderful place, that even, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not your real life, but it gives you a break from your real life. And we all need that sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and people get that through film, they get it through reading. That's, that's where I like novels, you know? Because novels uh, take right. long to read, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I, can, I can fill my brain with the images and stories of these other people and not be focused on other things that are going on in my life and in the world that I, that I need a break from. We, get, we have to have breaks. We have to be able to recharge, you know, and art can be part of that, too. So I, I think it's, it's very important. I'm always so appreciative of people who, who share publicly through their writing, through their performing, you know things that they're doing because that's that's so important in so many different ways. So right, and, and, and I think art art can be an act of um, bravery and a risk too. Yes. I, 
I remember that, you know, when my students bring their poems to class, but that's already an act of bravery. Yeah. And so, you know, they, we owe them, we owe them kindness and our, you know, our listening ears. So, yeah, I like that. And, and I would feel neglectful if I didn't mention that people will actually get the chance one of the many chances, I'm sure, but a, a chance to hear you reading your poetry, as well as a lot of other wonderful poets from across the country in April. April is National Poetry Month, so that's a whole fun thing. And yes. the weekend of the 21st through the 23rd at Prospero's Bookstore, and there'll also be, I think, an event at the Writer's Place, and maybe even something at Charlie Parker's graveside to be announced. Um, there, there will be gatherings of poets, performances, books to be sold, stories to be shared, people to meet in person that you've only encountered through print or even just online. And this wonderful event called the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown. And you can find information about that on Facebook, just with that simple event name, Kansas City Poetry Throwdown. You can find it on the website of Spartan Press, which is one of the sponsors. Um, and, and Jenny Malberg will be one of the poets there. And so it's it's a great opportunity, April 21st through 23rd of this year, 2017, to, to experience a lot of wonderful poetry. Um, there'll be funny stuff. There'll be in-your-face stuff. There'll be all kinds. <laughs> mm -hmm. so glad oh, and, and also, Marsha, I want, uh -huh. I want to add, too, that I, I will be reading at the University of Kansas on May 7th. Uh, with my colleague, Catherine Nuremberger. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. At KU, here in Lawrence. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. people can look for your book, Marvels of the Invisible, easily found on Tupelo Press, and meet you in person. And then your students get to encounter you throughout the year as, as you're helping them find their voices and their ways of writing. So that's that's a cool thing. That's that's an amazing gift. Some of us, you know, didn't have such good uh, <clears throat> encouragement, instructors, whatever we want to, whoever we want to blame, however we want to label those people. <laughs> thrilled to, to know that there are so many wonderful writers with a passion for writer writing and a passion for teaching. You know, and when you talk yeah. about your students, that that clear respect and love for your students comes across. And so it's like, what a great gift to them that they get to work with you, learn from you. And, and they're learning things that are, yeah, it's about lighting, but it's also a lot about life, you know, life lessons, all those, those parallels. So thank mm -hmm. you for writing, for teaching, and I'm glad that you will be part of the Kansas City Poetry Throwdown. Jenny Bolt. Thank you so much. Thank you. And so long for this news.